Hello, and welcome to Melting Pot Stories, the podcast that is a literary love fest of multicultural books. I'm your host for the show, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a writer, an author of both fiction and nonfiction, a literary coach, and a fan of all things multicultural and colorful. On this podcast, you'll hear inspiring conversations about the stories behind our favorite diverse books and the latest literary tea from the publishing world. Come on and join me. I promise this podcast will leave you lit. On episode 59 of the podcast, we're having a birthday party for a very special book. And that book is Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. Yes, Hair Story is the very first book I ever wrote with my good friend, the author and journalist Ayana Bird. Hair Story covers the history, politics, business, and culture of black hair from 15th century Africa to modern-day America. Ayana and I birthed this book 20 years ago, and it debuted on February 1st, 2001. Our publisher, St. Martin's Press, then re-released the book in 2014 when we added two additional chapters and updated the text to incorporate all of the massive changes that had happened in the decades since the book's debut. Namely, the internet became a thing in the world of black hair, and the natural hair movement exploded. Ayana has joined me on the podcast today as we look back at the journey to get this groundbreaking book into the world and the massive impact Hair Story has had in its two decades of life. But before we get to that conversation, let's take a melting pot minute to catch up on what's going on in the world of multicultural books. Hello, book lovers. This is so exciting for me because this is our first official episode as a podcast about multicultural books. And it's February, which means it's Black History Month, which means I can take this opportunity to share a bunch of Black book news and feel totally justified and appropriate. Now, it is my podcast and I can do whatever I want, but still, it feels very apropos that it's Black History Month when I'm launching this podcast. So, In honor of Black History Month, do you know how many famous Black American authors were actually born in the month of February? Let me just tell you some of them. Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Frederick Douglass, Langston Hughes, Jacqueline Woodson, Audre Lorde, W.E.B. Du Bois, me. (laughs) I'm just kidding about the me part. My birthday is in February, but I just think it's so incredible that all of these amazing Black writers were born in February. And we consider February Black History Month. I think we should start considering February Black Literary History Month. And even if you try to read, you know, something by all of these writers in the month of February, you probably wouldn't finish everything. So just keep that in mind. Black History Month from now on should be Black Literary History Month. All right, moving on. Speaking of Black American greats, I am recording this right now on January 30th and two days ago on January 28th. The queen herself, Miss Cicely Tyson, left this earthly plane. But just a few days before she died, Tyson released her memoir called Just As I Am. And according to Deadline magazine, literally right after her death, Just As I Am hit number one on Amazon and even temporarily went out of stock because demand was so high. 
Now, I'm sure once this episode airs, there will be plenty of copies of the book available. But no matter what, you can always get a copy of the ebook or the audiobook because, again, they're always available. And just so you know, Cicely Tyson did some of the narration on the audiobook, as did Viola Davis, total bonus, and the voice actress Robin Miles. I'm just thankful that Cicely Tyson decided at age 90, I guess she was probably 95 when she started writing the book, but I'm just so glad that she got her words down on paper and we have this book to remember her amazing life. Again, it's just as I am. And finally, I just wanted to shout out a new YA title that caught my eye when I read about it earlier this week. The book is called Wings of Ebony by debut author J.L. Now, this is how the author described Wings of Ebony. She said, quote, think of the 2018 film The Hate You Give meets DC's Wonder Woman, but it takes place in a Black Panther world. She said that one of her goals was to bring back the same pride as Black Panther did when it came out, but in a book for young people. I thought the book sounded really amazing, and I'm not a big sci-fi or fantasy person. Like, that's not the genre I'm too excited about. But this book where the main character is like a demigod, and she has to save her people who live in, again, this kind of Wakanda-like world, but it's still very gritty and real— sounded actually quite good. And I definitely think I'm going to be picking up a copy. And also the cover art is just gorgeous. So I'm definitely going to pick one up. And I think anybody else who likes this type of story should pick it up as well. And for all of you aspiring writers out there, the origin stories of this book is pretty cool. Apparently the author wrote a draft of her manuscript, you know, wrote out the full draft. And then she posted a snippet on Twitter where so many people responded. People were so excited about it that a bunch of publishers were like, oh my gosh, we want to get this book. And she got a book deal. And the rest is history. Again, the book is called Wings of Ebony by J.L. It's published by Deneen Milner Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Now, let's get to our conversation about hair story with my co-author and friend, Ayana Bird. Welcome to Melting Pot Stories, Ayana Bird. Hi, Lori. I'm so excited to be here talking to you. Well, I'm super happy you're here. And I feel like we should let everybody know that we are recording in our separate COVID safe homes, except that those separate COVID homes are right next door to each other. Yes. And if I look, I just turned my head and looked out the window. And if your daughter was in her bedroom, I'd be able to see her because her <laughs> my office is next to her bedroom. And what's so amazing and what has to do with hair story about that is I am from Philadelphia and we did a lot of research on the book and focus groups for the book in Philadelphia. And Lori fell in love with Philly while we were down here, even though we both lived in Brooklyn. So I love that part of your origin story of your family coming to Philly has to do with hair story. Yeah, that's one of the impacts, right? I mean, this book has done a lot, more than probably any other book I have written. And we're going to get into all of, you know, the things that Hair Story has done. But I want to go all the way back. Like, I want people to understand how this book came to be because, again, it was our first book and we were pretty young to be authors. So I want to know if, do you remember how you and I actually met and how the idea of this book came to be? Yes. So I was 23 years old and I had just come back from a summer 
spent living in London. And I came back to freelance fact check at Vibe magazine. So I had worked at Vibe. It was my first job out of college. And then I left. And I was coming back for my second of three times that I ended up working at Vibe. And the research room was where fact checkers, the freelance fact checkers worked. And it was a small room with four to six of us in the room. And I was just told what my desk would be when I was there. And it was sitting next to you. And we were introduced by the research chief, Dave Bree, who was an editor at Vibe. And our hours were crazy. We were young, which is why I think we could do this. So we were often at work until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And we started at 10 in the morning. And after a certain point, you're not talking about work. So you start to find out things about the person that you're sitting next to. And so I just would have a lot of late nights eating with you. And Dave Bree, our boss, actually came in one night and said, oh, you guys actually have something in common. You both are interested in black hair. And I'll I'll let you take the story from there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's funny because Dave Bree, may he rest in peace. He was a wonderful human being, but he was a white man with red hair. And it was kind of funny to me that this guy was saying to you, you know, you guys both have this interest in black hair. And I don't, I guess I must have mentioned that because it was my thesis in graduate school. So I probably when he interviewed me, I must have mentioned that. And I had been an intern at Vibe while I was still at Barnard College my senior year. And I was in the honors program at Barnard where you had to do a project of your own, any project that you wanted. And my project was on black hair. And this was in 1995 that I graduated. And so no one was really talking about black hair. And so I was at Vibe while I was working on that honors project. And so my guess is that Dave Bree heard about it because I was working on it while I was an intern. And he just remembered because I definitely did not have long conversations with him about it. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been weird, right? Like, (laughs) but I mean, you're, because it's, you're so right. People weren't talking about black hair the way we were, which is why when I told my thesis advisor, who was a white woman from England, shout out to Helen Benedict, who was an amazing writer and journalist. You know, her response was, this is not a project idea. Like you can't write your thesis in graduate school on black hair. She's like, that might be a personal essay, but you can't do a rigorous journalistic inquiry into black hair. And she wasn't being mean. She just didn't see, like, she was like, you're going to fail because your whole grade depended on this thesis. Well, that was the same thing I encountered. I had Natalie Campen was my honors project advisor. And she was a white woman from Philadelphia who was in the art history department. And she was very encouraging and she was a great advisor, but her fear was that, because we're supposed to work on this project for two years, and she just was nervous that I didn't have two years worth of material. And she just didn't want me to hit a wall because I picked, and I was like, no, 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 trust me, there's plenty that I can do. And at the end, and I think this was why Dave Bree probably remembered that we'd both done these things. Both of us were told when we were finished, you, your graduate thesis, when I was done my honors project, that we should turn this into a book from our professors who had not even understood how it could have been just the initial project that we had in mind. And so I remember one night at work, Dave was like, oh, you guys both have this interest in black hair. And we were telling each other about what we did. And your project was more historical and mine was more sociological. And we realized that if you put our projects together, 
and turned it into a social history that we should do what both of our professors had said, which was turn it into a book. And so I remember it's just one of those, I don't remember how old you were, but you know, I was 23, maybe 24 by the time we had this conversation. And sure, why not? Let alone, I'd never at that point written a feature article in a magazine, never written a cover story, had only worked at one magazine, but it felt completely doable that I could write an entire book. I know. When you say it like that, that is so true. We were so ballsy because I think it was because we had each other. Because I remember- And no sleep. We were always at work. (laughs) But like, even now that sounds crazy because I was pining away for maybe Vi will let me write a story, like a longer story instead of maybe just, you know, little tidbits here and there, a sidebar here, a sidebar there. And I remember when my advisor said, maybe you should turn this into a book. I was like, I wouldn't even know what, you know, like it just seemed like a crazy overwhelming thing. But for some reason at two o'clock in the morning in the research room with you, it was like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) And the funny thing about that research room is it's like casinos. There were no windows. So you just lost sense of time while you were in there. So it made sense. I think we were just delirious. I think we were, but, you know, I think there's people listening who want to write books, you know, and probably will meet people who say that's crazy or you shouldn't do it. And we didn't know what we were doing and we still figured out how to write. Like, remember, we thought that if we wrote a two page overview, like we spent time thinking about what this book would be. Like you said, it was kind of my historical, your sociological. And we really were like, yeah, this is it. And we sent our little proposal. Again, this was not a real nonfiction book proposal. It must've been like a couple of pages and we sent it to the best agent. No, first we, we sent Maria a one-page letter to see was if- Was it just it, a letter? It was a one-page a... letter, okay. an actual letter, not an email, typed, right. summarizing what our, because one of my college roommates, her mother was a Black woman in book publishing. She was an editor and she was kind enough to talk to me about what we should do since we had this idea. And she said, you'd want to get an agent. And she said, Marie Brown was the agent that she thought would be great for us. And so even though Marie had worked with all of these incredible authors that we'd heard of and who were older than us and had these prolific careers, we sent her a letter. And I just remember it was a one-page letter summarizing what our idea was. And our idea was that hopefully one day, somewhere in the future, Marie will write back to us. (laughs) And then she did right away. I don't know if she wrote us or called us. I don't remember. I just remember she called us back or called us or I don't know how she responded back, but she responded back and that we were going to have a lunch date. And I was like, oh my God, all my dreams are coming true. We were having a lunch date at the North Star in Soho in New York City with a famous agent. I was like, oh, I'm not, what was it? 26, 27. Like, oh my God, all my dreams are coming true. I thought she was going to be like, now you have a book deal. But she was like, <laughs> This is a good idea, but you have to write a proposal. She also said she'd had this conversation with many people and that once they had this conversation, the go do the, that many people come to her like, oh, you want to write a book about black hair? And she was like, great, that's great. That book is needed. Now you need to do a proposal. And then she said she never heard from those people again. So we were like, we will not be those people. Yes. (laughs) We're like, we're going to do it. But I just remember thinking like, all right, we did it. We got the agent call and thinking like all of our dreams were going to be solved. Like all our problems were be solved. Like this is it. Also shout out to Park Diner in Brooklyn Heights. This diner was on both of our subway lines and we would meet there and it was a pretty cheap diner with like one of those diners that has like a 
50 page laminated menu where they make way too many things like shrimp scampi, French toast. <laughs> like, should I trust that? And we would go there and work. And that was where we actually really birthed what turned into hair story. Exactly. And I don't know, but I think French toast and hash browns should just kind of be like the meal that powered hair story. I feel like there was a lot of French toast eaten. I'm sure time. I got French toast every week. Yeah. So we got this book done. And, you know, when we got the proposal done and Marie sold it to St. Martin's Press, I was thrilled. And by the time, you know, and again, like, I feel like I want people to know that, you know, we were young and we were full of confidence, but we were also fearful. Like there were times where we stopped progressing because we just got afraid or we started doubting that we were that we were the people to write this book. But that was when we were doing the proposal because by yeah. the time Marie sold the book, we were full steam ahead. We had six months to write the entire book and I we met our deadline. Right. So 20 years later, and I just feel like we did a pretty awesome thing. Like you said, we wrote this book in six months and we were on the road. Like this was way before the internet was a reliable source of anything. And so we were traveling. We went to Indiana to go to the Madam C.J. Walker archives. We did some real like gumshoe reporting for this book because people don't understand that this really is and was continues to be the only book that really dug into the history of black hair, the culture, the business, and like put it all in one spot. There was no repository of black hair information that we could just go to and sit and figure it out. I remember we, Harriet Cole, who I also want to thank for this, she had all of the bound copies of Essence. And do you remember we just sat in red all of these volumes of essence to just look at the different ads and ways that hair was talked about. And it was amazing because we did not, there wasn't a book about black hair ads that we could just reference. We really just sat there and looked at black hair ads for decades. Right, exactly. And from Ebony as well. Mm -hmm. And we I mean, the Schomburg using, exactly. um, what is it called? Microfilm? Is that yeah. It? Yeah. Yes. And it was like, wait, we can't take this out. Wait, we have to sit here this whole time. We just like lived there. I just found my Schomburg library card, believe it or not. I still have it. So we did so much. I'm just wondering, what do you feel like was the biggest like, I mean, again, because you had done your project in school, I had done mine, but this was still new information that we had to research. What do you remember being so like inspired by or surprised by or? Well, I guess three things. One was the history of the Afro and how it went from, I shouldn't say the history of the Afro because I knew going into hair stories sort of what the origins of the Afro were, but really learning about how this style became almost like this brand and how it became what it started out as an outright political statement was co-opted by Hollywood and the music industry. I found that fascinating because Afro started out being so dangerous to certain segments of society and then fully co-opted by that same segment. So I just thought that was so interesting. And then also the history of the Jerry Curl was fascinating to me because I grew up in the 80s when Jerry Curls, when they were created, and then when they were also lampooned endlessly in movies or TV shows, and then when they sort of died out. And so I thought I knew about Jerry Curls, but what I learned in the research that we did was that the creation of the Jerry Curl was really a reaction to Afros in a way that I'd never thought about before. And was also this attempt to help save a certain segment of Black hair care business because so many products had gone out of business because they weren't needed during the Afro. So I just also thought this 
style that had been turned into such a joke had really serious, deep ties to Black hair culture in a way that I would have never known. And I think the third thing I found so surprising was, and Lori, this was actually a chapter that you did most of the research for, but the first chapter in the book about attitudes about hair during slavery or American slavery, the idea that white slave owners intentionally try to instill these ideas of bad hair and the inferiority of how Black people looked to Black women who were enslaved so that they would carry that idea to their children. And I just, of course, that is how, if you're really trying to poison people against themselves, you would think that the mother would be the way to do that. But it hadn't occurred to me that it, I didn't know until we were doing our research that that's what happened. Yeah, those were things that stuck with me as well. You know, so many things that we take for granted as just kind of being the way they are actually have origins in white supremacy, basically. They're not just coincidental, and it's not something like pathologically connected to the Black experience, right? I feel like that was kind of, um, yeah, that was like a big takeaway for me. And just the the way that Black hair has been so financially lucrative for people even before the Civil War, right? You know, understanding that Black men, you know, had barber shops where they were not barbering Black men, they were barbering white people. But just that the fact that hair has been a place where Black people have been able to make a living since, you know, like day one. And that, remember the Black, the three sisters who were making like hair pieces and wigs and making money in Massachusetts? So when people like today still get a little salty about making sure they're buying products from Black-owned businesses or when Black-owned businesses sell to larger white-owned companies. I get that now in a way I never did before because I see how this business has literally pulled people out of poverty. It has been the foundation for schools and universities and social organizations and financial success for so many of our people. So, I mean, I understand business. I understand, you know, the importance of profit and sales and things like that. But I'm seriously that person who's like, come on, Black people, let's get it back. You know, I feel like once you understand the history of this business, it's very hard not to see it in like personal and cultural terms and not just with profit and loss and numbers. So I feel like that's my biggest takeaway. And you were the, I really have to credit you with so much. When we started figuring out how to structure the book, you said you wanted to make sure there was a chapter on the business of black hair. And now there's two chapters on that since we updated the book. But when you said that, we were first talking probably at the diner in, I don't know, 2000, maybe. I thought, sure, sure, there'll be a chapter on the business of black hair because why not? But I really learned so much from that chapter. Like you're saying, I thought it would just be You know what? Now I don't know what I thought that chapter would be, but I didn't think it would really be the story of um, Black economic nationalism, which I think is really this sub-theme of our book that we did not intend to be in there when we first started writing it, but that has really emerged. And especially once we updated the book, because when we updated it, the natural hair movement had happened and the internet made it possible for so many Black entrepreneurs, a lot of Black female entrepreneurs to become business owners with Black hair care products in a way that we had not seen in so many years. And 
because they suddenly had distribution channels and they didn't have to deal with brick and mortars. And so our book sort of tells a story of why it's worth considering every time you purchase a black hair product that it's owned by a black person. And I love that we sort of stumbled into the sub theme in our book that we didn't intend when we first started doing it. Exactly. So well put. So well put. So those are our kind of big takeaways. And again, like that Jerry curl, like I, like you, I thought the Jerry curl was a joke, but then I realized the Jerry curl was a gold mine. Like we're talking about business. There's just always another layer when it comes to black hair. It's never just the style, right? And that's what I think people come away with when they read our book, that this is not a style guide. Uh, can you remember how many times people are like, well, can you tell me what I should wear? How we should were both like, we don't hair? know how to do hair. We, don't, we hair. can't answer that. <laughs> Sorry. But do you call yourself a hair historian now? I do. I mean, I don't, but I could. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't have it on a business card or anything, but like, it's been a continuous learning. There's, and it's it, funny it because I do find myself like the amount of things that you and I both know about black hair, it's staggering, but we've known this information for 20 years. I don't even realize how much I know or that people don't know as much as I know because it's just, it's just an encyclopedia of knowledge that I just carry with me. And I'm bringing it up in conversation when I watch movies or watch TV and see things that aren't historically accurate or people ask me questions and I think they're expecting maybe a one sentence answer. And I'm like, blah, 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 blah. Because we, what we did in the book was that we, we wove together all of the different parts of the story, which like you said, like the Jerry Curl is not just one thing. It was, it was a national joke, but it was so many other things. And I think we managed to tell all the different pieces of these stories, but now that's just stuff that we know. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. It's all in our head. We are walking encyclopedias of hair information. And this book, I think we could have called this a hair, a black hair encyclopedia. And it's, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was, you know, when we talk about impact, if you start to think about all of the documentaries and the books for children and the other books about hair, whether they're books of essays or there's, I feel like there's three or four books now called Don't Touch My Hair. When you think about the fact that, I mean, I don't want to say that our book is the reason these other books and documentaries and films exist, but I know that our book has inspired people to take our hair seriously, and it's inspired people to find their voice around their own hair stories. Well, I think as Black, I was about to say as Black Americans, but I actually will say as Black people, because even though our book just talks about America, we've had the opportunity to give talks and do panels in other countries and talk to other non-American Black people about hair. So I think Black people, I think our hair is a serious thing and an important thing to us always. But I think what our book did was that it gave people the information about why our hair was important and what the story was, right? So it was like, here's the information, here's the story, here's how they tried to erase it, here's why they tried to erase it, and this is how we continue to progress when it comes to our hair. And I think that's what our book did. It told people why it was important, even though they already knew it was, if that makes sense. I think that makes perfect sense. So you just mentioned that we've been able to go out of the country and talk to people. We were both together in London to like sold out rooms, honestly, sold out rooms. Large rooms. (laughs) Yeah, large rooms. Auditoriums, people. Like British auditoriums. Where have you been outside of the U.S. also where you've had a chance to talk to people and have them tell you what it, what the book has meant to them. I've talked about hair and hair story in St. Martin's in Amsterdam, 
Lisbon, Paris. And I once was interviewing a Black woman in South Africa who wrote a really wonderful children's book about a little girl with her magical hair beads. And I was interviewing her for an article with Essence, but we ended up sitting on the phone for over an hour just talking about Black hair. By the end, it had absolutely nothing to do with my Essence interview, but really just talking about these shared hair stories and how similar so many of them were, even though she was in South Africa and I was at the time in Brooklyn. So that wasn't a talk with other people, but it really just drove home to me how universal so much of the story is. Yeah, I've spoken to people in London with you, obviously, that was in 2014, right after the updated version had come out. And then I've had a chance to speak to people in London again in 2020 during the pandemic. And I've been so struck at how interested and happy people are to get this information. And thinking back over the 20 years of where we've given talks, do you remember talking at Spelman College when the book first came out? Yes, it was such an amazing talk. Wasn't that great? And do you remember the young woman who stood up at the end of our talk during the Q&A portion, and she started literally giving a testimonial as to how the book had helped her finally love her natural hair. And she then whipped off her yes. wig in front of everybody like a look I at me. I told you that woman ended up being my neighbor in bed not that long ago. Did I tell what? you that? Yes. No. She, I was in like, wait a minute, people. I feel like there should be like a <laughs> horn or a bells or something. Are you kidding? I was in, I used to live in Bed-Stuy before I moved to Philly and there was a restaurant there, Peaches. And Peaches is basically like cheers for my neighborhood. Like everyone knew everyone. You walked in and they said hi. And so I was sitting, eating at the bar with my friend Akiba, who was very much like the mayor of Peaches. Like everyone knew her. She was always there. And a woman came over who knew Akiba and was talking to her and then said to me, you don't remember me, but I was at one of your talks at Hair Story at Spelman. I was like, oh yeah, I remember we were at Spelman. She goes, maybe you'll remember this. And then she talked about taking her wig off. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> I was like, we talk about you sometimes. And yeah, and she, she was natural hair. I don't remember. I think locks, but I don't remember. I wish I could remember her name. And she lives in bed or she did a couple of years ago. Shout out to the girl who whipped her wig off at Spelman because that image- and she said she never went back. Like she went natural from our book. And, you know, I saw her nearly 20 years later. That's so incredible. Oh my gosh, that makes me so happy. I mean, and I've been telling people recently when they ask about, you know, what is the significance of the natural hair movement? And I say that it's like religion. And I mean that in the sense that getting the information about black hair feels like somebody has told you the truth that had been denied you for generations. So I feel like when people understand and learn what our hair has been through and how resilient and strong it has been in our politics and our culture and our financial situations, they feel like, again, that they just got the Holy Ghost, right? They feel like they just found religion. And I feel like it is like that because we have been lied to, like our hair has been the source of so much oppression in so many different ways. And having an opportunity to love our hair, to be proud of it, like we were pre 
European conquest of the West Coast of Africa, that's amazing. That is revolutionary. And I feel like the impact of this book is pretty awesome. And I kind of did a little bit of research last night, just kind of reviewing some of the places where Hair Story has been seen, where it's being used. We've been on the BBC. We've been in the New York Times. We've been on CBS Sunday Morning. We've been in the Baltimore Sun, the Philadelphia Daily News, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Essence, more than once, right? I mean, Essence was really so supportive of the book, which is great. Absolutely. And our book is being used in college classrooms as well. It's on a lot of syllabi. I've given talks to graduate students. I gave a talk to a philosophy graduate seminar at Columbia, maybe in 2014. They were just talking about aesthetics and philosophy and race. And the professor had read Hair Story and he brought me in. And I was like, I can't do that. I don't... I've never taken a philosophy class. They're grad students. These people are way smarter than me, but they just wanted to talk about black hair. And it was fascinating, but not someplace I would have thought our book would go. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like the the strangest places or the, I don't want to say strangest, but the most unexpected places. I had a journalist from Denmark called me because she wanted to talk about black hair. I'm like, why? And she's like, because I think it's interesting. She's a journalist. This is for like I don't know the equivalent of the daily news in Denmark, whatever, but it just surprises me how many different people find this story fascinating. And I know that a lot of people ask us, is this a book for Black people? And it's like, well, yeah, but it's also a book for anybody else who is interested in culture and history and the Black experience, which is kind of like everybody, right? Right. Well, I remember when Hair Story came out, there were all of these social history books started coming out around the same time. And one of them was a social history of trash. And so when people would ask us, oh, is this book for Black people? We're like, if there is a book on the social history of trash and we are a social history of Black hair, no one's asking the trash book. Is this just for people with trash? No, it's for people who want to read an interesting story. And that really, and you know, our book, we... We were very intentional that we wanted to tell the story of Black people in America through our hair. And so it's really just sort of the slice of American history for all of the years that Black people have been in America, what was going on with our hair. But it's not just the hair. It's what was going on politically, what was going on spiritually, what was going on economically, what was going on in all of these different ways. But hair is the anchor to it. Exactly. Exactly. And I remember thinking, because there were so many incidents today, we call them microaggressions. That word didn't really exist when we first started writing. But I remember thinking that, you know, if white people or non-Black people, I shouldn't say just white people, but if non-Black people had a better understanding of the significance of our hair, then there would be a lot less microaggressions. There would be a lot less misunderstandings, firings, expulsions from school, because so much of what happens, the conflict around Black hair in this country and other countries is a lack of understanding. You know, people still think that a certain hairstyle means something, which is not, right? Or people don't understand that if you wear a hairstyle and you're not Black, it hurts. Same thing with the economics. So so I hope, I want everybody to read this book. And everybody should read this book. It's paperback. You can get it and you can Read it easy and like there's just no reason why if you live in a world where there are- You can even download it to your Kindle. You don't have to buy an actual book. You can also hear it narrated to you because there's even an audio book now. So Yanni, we're getting close to end of time and I want to ask you, how do you feel like your life? I mean, so we know now the book is everywhere. The book has even had its 
the movie rights option. Like the book is literally everywhere. It's inspired other films. It's inspired other books. It's inspired poems. And so we know this book has been cited a million times in like people's dissertations and people doing podcasts and everything everywhere, right? So how has it actually changed your life? If you had to say what hair, like how hair story writing it impacted you, what would you say? It made me rich. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. It did not. <laughs> um, writing hair story and writing the new chapters for hair story. And I mean, it did a couple of things. One is that when I look back and I didn't realize it was happening at the time, but now I know it was really giving me confidence in my ideas, right? Because again, you and I were both told this isn't a full project. And when we did it, there was no natural hair movement. There were no hair blogs. There weren't blogs of any kind, let alone black hair blogs. And we did this just believing that we had something. And I didn't feel validated because St. Martin's bought it or because we got an agent. I felt validated once we wrote a book that I was proud of. And I think that belief in me being able to do something that wasn't the obvious thing to do has helped my entire career to just like trust myself. And then it's also made me an expert on something, <laughs> All right, Like I do a couple of things really well. I make, I can plan an international move effortlessly and I make really delicious scones and I can tell you anything you want to know about black hair. And I'm a really good mom to a teething baby, right? Like those are four things that I do really well. But the hair story, that's more than 20 years of research. And it's the topic that I've spent the longest time with in my entire career. Because I started out as a music journalist, then I worked at women's magazines. And so I've, as far as a journalist, I've bounced around to different topics, but hair has been the constant. And it still excites me and I still love learning things. And I really love now seeing all of the things that other Black people are doing around our hair, whether it's short films that win an Oscar or children's books or other nonfiction books or documentary, like poems. I just love seeing all of these things existing around Black hair. But I also love that I'm an expert enough to contextualize them within the larger story. So that's what I think it's done for me. What about you? That's great. I feel like kind of ditto in a lot of ways. If you had told me 20 years ago that I was going to write a book about Black hair and it was going to be kind of my life's work, I would have laughed. I mean, I thought it was interesting when we were writing the book, but I did not think it was going to be that thing that stayed with me, that people would continuously come to me to seek out information about. And I think it speaks to how important our book is and how unique it is that people still seek us out when they're doing their hair thing. I literally, in the last two weeks, was called by a journalist in Canada and a journalist in the UK because they wanted to do something about Black hair. And our names are the ones that continuously come up. So I'm grateful for that because I'm an Aquarius and I too have bounced around like subject-wise. But hair has been the thing that, you know, I know a heck of a lot about. And I'm so proud to know this. And it feels like my entree into the Black experience is through hair. And it's such a great, expansive way to look at the Black experience. And 
it's something that like, I feel like I can, I can literally take it with me <laughs> on my head and in my head. Wow. Do you see what I just did there? That's kind of cool. <laughs> but what's so great, I think, is also that this, you know, we wrote a history book, but it's a living history, right? It's yes. a, We could, not that I want to do this, but we could write a new chapter every year. Yes, absolutely. Because that's how dynamic Black hair still, it's not done. It's not over. And it's not a tragic story. I mean, bad things happen around Black hair, particularly when you bring in like white owned companies, but there are really beautiful things also happening around it. And so I love that it's just this like always changing dynamic story. Right. We'll always have people wanting us to comment because (laughs) there's always something to say. That's what I love. I mean, I really do love. So I guess this book is keeping us relevant, Yanni, right? Like as long as there's black hair, we're going to have something to say, something to write about, something to talk about. And like you said, I feel like in 2021, I want to keep talking about the beauty of black hair and not so much giving attention to the negative things that, you know, will always be there. Because at the end of the day, I feel like the reason I went natural before that was a thing was because I finished doing the research for my thesis and felt I had neglected getting to know my hair because I was constantly slathering chemicals on it and straightening it. And I just felt like I had to get to know this powerful aspect of my being, my hair. And I've been natural ever since. Did you have straight hair the entire time you wrote your thesis? Yes. Okay. And I graduated from Columbia Journalism School. And like a week later, I went and shaved my hair. And it was like, hello, I've been learning all about you. Like I've been birthing you as I've been writing my thesis. And I just remember putting my hands up into my head and feeling my natural hair and just being like, like, hello, it's so nice to meet you after all this time reading about you and studying you. But you know, like one of the things I really love about Hair Story is it's not a book that's just about natural hair. Like I think some of the great stories in there are just, I love the history of the weave. And like I already talked about everything that I learned about the history of Jerry Curls. Like I think so much about black hair history isn't even just about natural hair or natural versus straight. And I think there's so many really culturally significant things that Black people continue, that we continue to do with straight styles and extensions and wigs, things that are really Black, even though the hair may not be the texture it naturally would grow out of our heads. And so I also love that we captured that side of our hair history. Right. The creativity. And that's what was so great. That's why I'm so glad we did the story from the beginning, literally before European contact, because Africans were super creative with their hairstyles, right? They were, you know, using extensions. They were adding things like shells and and feathers and flowers and, and just making these intricate, elaborate styles, which just shows like that's what our hair is meant to do. It's meant to show who we are and to show up and show out if that's what we want to do. And it's so amazing because our hair is so strong. It can do these things, right? It can do all of these really incredible things. Exactly. I mean, you and I are funny because we have like two hairstyles each <laughs> and we just flop back and forth. But other people... <laughs> Other people have all sorts, like a we'll wear a range of styles. And I just, I love that our hair can do all of that. Time is coming up that we have to say goodbye, but I want to give a toast to our book for its birthday. So I know you have your special drink and I'm going to get my special drink. (laughs) Hold on. Now, Yanni is a new mom and I'm just a teetotaler. So our special drinks are seltzer water. Okay. 
There it goes. Yay, us. Yay, us. Yay, book. Yanni, I'm holding up my glass. I just took a sip out of my bottle. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot to bring a glass upstairs to my office. I'm just drinking out of the bottle. That's okay. I'm not going to hold it against you. Happy birthday hair story. Yay. Thanks again, Lori, for having me on. Oh, I'm not done with you yet. Hold on. I want to know, and everybody wants to know, like, what are you working on next? So you don't have to do your whole 20-year career, but where are you now with your career? Where did Hair Story leave you 20 years on? So I am writing for a Amazon TV show that the title's still being decided on. So I won't talk about that. But so I'm doing TV writing, which is incredible. And where I do actually get to talk about Black hair sometimes. And I'm finishing revisions this year on my novel, which will be my fifth book, but my first fiction. How exciting. And again, I know there's some aspiring writers who listen, and it's really exciting that you went from writing a cultural history of Black hair to now being in a writer's room on a TV show where your knowledge of Black hair is actually being used. Yeah, it's amazing. Right. It's like we were saying it, this information just shows up in unexpected places. That's awesome. Do you have a social media handles or anything or website that you can tell people they can follow if they want to see what you're doing? You can follow me on Ayana Bird, A-Y-A-N-A-B-Y-R-D.com. Thank you. And of course, we'll put that in the show notes so people can find you easily. So again, thank you so much for sharing it going down memory lane with me. And we want to tell everybody that they should just go out and buy themselves a copy of Hair Story. It makes a great gift. It's paperback. You can get a ebook, audiobook, paperback. So we hope people read it because it really is a great book. I mean, and we're not saying that just because we wrote it, but it really is a great book and it gives you another sense of the Black American experience the American experience. It does all that. So thank you for listening and thank you for being here, Yanni. Um, We'll see everybody next week. I hope you enjoyed today's trip down memory lane with my co-author, Ayana Bird. I still can't believe our book baby is officially 20 years old. That makes me feel old. I feel like it was just yesterday when we were celebrating the book's release. I was so excited to have my first book contract. So in some ways, this feels like my birthday too, because it means it's been 20 years since I first became a published author, which has been a dream of mine since I was eight years old and my mother bought me an antique Remington typewriter. Of course, if you had told me then that Hair Story would be the reason people know my name, I never would have believed it. If you had told me that Hair Story would have such a significant impact in the lives of people not only here in the United States, but all over the world, I never would have believed that either. But I'm glad to wear the title of Hair Storian today. And I'm glad Ayana and I persevered and wrote that book. And I'm so glad that we could celebrate it today here on the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, the first one since pivoting the show to be all about multicultural books, and you're feeling like, man, I really want to show Lori how much I appreciate this new iteration of The Melting Pot, I have a few ways that you can show me some love. One, you can let your thumbs do the walking and the talking and head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. That will probably take no more than two minutes, but it will have an oversized impact in helping other people find the show. 
too. You can tell a friend to listen to this show. You know, the old-fashioned way. Like, just whispering in their ear, calling them on the phone, sending them a text, whatever you do to talk to your friends. Or you can even do one better and take a screenshot of the show and put it on all your social channels and tell a whole bunch of friends. Three, if you want to let your wallet do the talking, here's two things you can do. One, buy a copy of Hair Story. Just go to the My American Melting Pot website, which is at myamericanmeltingpot.com, and scroll down on the right, and you'll see a link to buy the book Hair Story. And the link is for bookshop.org. So when you buy the book, not only are you supporting me and this show, but you're also supporting independent booksellers all across the country. And the other way you can support the podcast while you're going through your wallet is you can leave me a little tip via PayPal. And why leave a tip? Because producing this show isn't free. It's not even low budget, because that's not how I roll. There are real costs associated with putting this literary love fest together. So I've made it super easy for you to support the creation of this podcast just by hitting the bright yellow button and donate whatever you think is best. Thank you. Melting Pot Stories is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. Please come back next Friday. And always remember that multicultural stories matter. <laughs>